You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. Thank you, Nancy and Bernina. I had a thought I'll share with you in the robe room there, so I was putting my microphone on tonight, an inspired thought that has nothing to do with the Bible or theology. Many of you may notice that I'm always fussing with this earpiece microphone because it doesn't stay in place, and it's always moving, and the wire pulls, and, and I thought, aha, maybe there's an inventor who could come up with flesh-colored duct tape, <laughs> and I could put it on my face and glue that baby down, and it would stay put. Well, I guess that's not a very inspirational way to come to a sacred text, but just sharing my thoughts. Galatians. Galatians is where we're looking tonight. We've been reading Colossians on Sundays. One of the later letters is Colossians, written in the early 60s, probably 62 or so in the time of Paul, near the end of his life. We think Galatians was written about 14 years earlier. It's one of the earliest of the letters. It's directed at a very specific problem in the Galatian churches. There were multiple churches in the territory of Galatia, and there were people disrupting the church there. And we're just going to read this last portion of the letter. Our probably main concern is verse 14, but I'll begin at verse 11 of Galatians 6. Listen to God's Word. Paul writes, See with what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised so they may boast about your flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. Amen. In this culture of unemployment we've been experiencing in our country, many of you know firsthand or you have friends who have experienced the writing of a new employment resume. Today, of course, this is the key document. You young people have never seen a resume. You'll learn what it is someday, I promise you, in which you try to take one or two pages of paper and condense on it all of your schooling who you are, your basic gifts, the experience you've had in work, and what you think are the specific contributions you might be able to make to a new employer. And it has to be written very carefully. You can't, there's no wasted words. You have no space to waste time or just run on and tell little stories. And obviously, you're trying to sell yourself. You're trying to present yourself in the most positive possible light, and yet, You do have to be a little careful that you're not arrogant or boastful in how you 
present yourself. A little humility is, is good to keep in mind. Now, from early childhood, we we're taught that bragging about ourselves or trying to promote ourselves is an unseemly thing to do. You don't go out and tell somebody, well, maybe you do when you're nine years old on the playground, but normally you don't go say, I'm smarter than you, I'm stronger than you, I'm more handsome, more talented than you, I have more money than you do. You may know those things to be true somehow, but you don't go and vaunt them against other people. God's Word even speaks to the subject. Jeremiah 9.23 says, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, nor the strong man his strength, nor the rich man his riches. And Solomon, the king, followed up with some good advice in Proverbs 27, verse 2, where he wrote, Let another praise you and not your own mouth. Someone else, not your own lips. In other words, there is a way for your horn to get blown, but let somebody else blow it for you. Let somebody else tell others of your good attributes. Well, here we are in the last paragraph of Galatians, and what I read for you is more than just some kind of a hasty goodbye, I'll see you soon, or or something like that that maybe you expect at the end of most letters. It's actually a very careful summation of what the letter of Galatians has been about. And if you only read verses 12 through 15, you would have the basis or basic thesis of this letter. For Paul here is wrapping up his teaching against false teachers who had come in to these Christian churches that were mixed between Jewish individuals, former Jewish-born people, and Gentile people, and who were teaching that the ritual of circumcision and many other Old Testament laws, when he says the word circumcision, that's just a symbol for all the different Old Testament laws that folks were coming in and saying, these have to be obeyed. If you're going to be a whole Bible Christian, you need to keep these Old Testament laws as well as having Christ. And in reaction to that, we know that Paul, in this most important letter that was a very significant keystone to the whole Reformation, wrote that the answer to that was justification by grace alone, received through faith alone, in Christ alone, which leaves God's true believer boasting in the cross alone. Now, in the first place tonight, I want to show you that Paul drew a radical dichotomy here as he asserted this. Either you are presently boasting in the cross or you're quietly, maybe not loudly, but quietly, you're boasting in yourself. There are few things worse than a smug, self-satisfied Christian. Such a person is actually a a, a kind of contradiction in terms. But there were folks who had invaded these Galatian churches coming in behind Paul and trying to correct Paul. We call them Judaizers because their emphasis was go back to the Old Testament. Jesus, fine, believe in him, call him Savior, but don't forget the Old Testament. You need to keep all of that too. And so they were coming in and telling Gentile men who had confessed Christ as Lord that they needed to be circumcised and they needed to keep a whole other 
raft of Old Testament laws like dietary laws and special feast days and so on. And they apparently were rather swaggering fellows because Paul is always striking out in this letter of Galatians about their pride in how they had numbered converts to their point of view as if they were maybe reporting back to headquarters in Jerusalem, hey, we got five new Gentiles to start following the Old Testament law today. Now, if these Jewish evangelists were unique-sounding in the way they were boasting about spiritual things, you should consider the fact that there are many, many ways that Christianity to still today fragments into different parties and rival camps with each group being sure that they have some emphasis that should be layered on top of the gospel of the cross, some vital doctrine that everybody should make sure they follow. It's a real temptation for churches everywhere to turn the gospel into the cross plus something else. Whether that something else is the authority of uh, Rome and its cardinals and bishops, whether it is a Pentecostal doctrine of speaking in tongues, whether it's an Anabaptist emphasis on peace and simple life, whether it's five-point Calvinism. There are many things that you can bring in and say, well, of course we want Christ, but you must have this too. And the problem is, with that plus item, whatever it is, that you would try to add on. For the cross of Jesus Christ either stands at the pinnacle of the true biblical gospel, or you don't get it. Now, it's important to define what Paul was meaning here as he talked about boasting, or the older King James word is glorying. Boasting, we've said, is not really a a good thing to do, at least not about ourselves. But there's more to what's involved here than just bragging. We try to understand what Paul is saying here, and it seems he's talking about the thing that you ultimately trust in above anything else. That's what you boast in. What you rejoice about in the most supreme way, the dominant thing you live for, whatever fills your horizon and engrosses your attention so that it dominates your time and energy, that is what you boast about because it's nothing less than your life's obsession. If someone said to you, I will come into your life and, you, and I'm going to take something away from your life. Now, you're allowed to keep one thing, be it a belief, an object, a person. You tell me what the one thing is that, I'm, that you would say you prize the most and you don't want me under any circumstances to take that away. Well, the Judaizers said the Old Testament law. Paul said the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what I live for. That's what overshadows me. That is the preeminent object I see day by day. It dominates my entire life. And I'm not dominated by many of the same things, Paul would say, that the average person is. Not popularity, not education, not my appearance, not pleasures, money, possessions, success in my job. Those are all worthwhile in their own area, but they don't dominate me. And Paul knew that the vast majority of all human beings do 
boast in or are dominated by one of those things I just named or some combination thereof. But Paul said at the bottom line, there's just two real options. We're either dominated by ourselves or by the cross. You know, if we had to be honest, I don't know how we would possibly document the amounts of time we all spend every day thinking about ourselves. We preen in mirrors, we carefully pick out our clothing and groom ourselves, we fret over how we will be presenting ourselves to other people. What will they think of me? How, How will I act in this situation? Oh, what should I say? And then afterward, we think about it and analyze. Oh, did I do it right? Oh, that was a dumb thing to say. I wonder what she's thinking about me now. And we show that we're really dominated by ourselves, by the vast amounts of time that we think about ourselves. Well, Paul is saying the cross becomes like a great litmus test. It passes judgment on us. It humbles us. It bows us down before Christ. Or, if it fails to do that, then we have set the cross of Jesus in some lower priority of status among the things we truly value when the chips are down. Secondly, I want you to consider a great irony that is here. The strange idea of putting the word boasting together with crucifixion. For in this point, I want to say to you that God's high son took on himself earth's lowest humiliation. And it is in that very scandal that we Christians make our boast. I don't have very many autographed photographs of people. It's not something I collect or anything like that. But I do have one of a rather famous sports figure, at least he was quite famous. None of you young people, I assure you, have ever heard of him unless you're really deep into baseball. I own an autographed photograph of former New York Giants, yes, I said New York Giants, baseball player Bobby Thompson. Who's he? Well, the Giants baseball team, you know, moved from New York to San Francisco a little more than 50 years ago. But if you were a Giants fan going way back, you know Bobby Thompson. He's now 85 years of age, still alive, I believe. He's celebrated in the annals of baseball for one special moment in his life. And it probably lasted a total of three or four minutes. Bobby Thompson hit a home run on October 3rd, 1951, when he was 28 years old, off of Brooklyn Dodgers, yes, Brooklyn Dodgers, pitcher Ralph Branca. And that homer gave the Giants an improbable league championship, and New York exploded. That home run was called the shot heard round the world. It was that famous. And older men today will greet Bobby Thompson at baseball shows and clap him on the back and shake his hand and congratulate him for that moment of glory in 1951. There's no limit, you see, to the adulation we will pour on somebody for even a few minutes' fame 
in the field of sports. Well, when we talk about the cross, aren't we talking about something that lasted a few hours on one day? But nobody was cheering. There were no crowds clapping or standing up and yelling. Yes, there were some loud voices, but they were cursing. They weren't cheering. And there on that day, we celebrate, and yes, we boast in a day, not of a sports record being set, but what really was an event of infamy. In the ancient world, death on a cross was just the worst thing there could be. You didn't talk about it. That's why people were crucified on what amounted to the garbage dump in Jerusalem, out of the way, back over there in a corner where polite society didn't have to see it. Jews considered crucifixion to be the unspeakable curse of God. Romans saw it as so despicable that they wouldn't talk about it, and happily they knew that a Roman citizen could not be crucified. No matter what crime he ever committed, he could be executed but not crucified. We sort of put a a rosy haze of romanticism around the cross, don't we? Wear, wear it in little, probably some ladies here tonight have a gold chain around your neck with a cross on it. That's fine. What would you think if our faith had used another symbol of execution, a more modern one, and the electric chair was the symbol of Christianity? Would you wear it? A little gold electric chair on a chain around your neck? You say, oh, that'd be repugnant. Well, let me tell you, anybody from the first century found the cross just as repugnant as you do the electric chair or the gas chamber. You must understand who died in this execution that we boast about. Last Sunday in Colossians 1, we heard that Jesus Christ is none other than the Creator God, the one by whom everything came into being, who upholds the creation by His word of power. This is the person they were laughing at and mocking there on that cross when they said He saved others, but He can't save Himself. The Creator! And it was the back, the physical back, of a supernatural preexistent divine person who they ripped into a bloody shambles with that whip the Roman soldiers used. The limp body that they dragged down and hastily buried was the body that was the incarnation of the Son of God. And so our boasting in this cross is a most strange kind of triumph. This sort of an act, a despicable act, to the highest of all persons Why, it was an ignominious defeat, and yet we say it was a triumph. It was the greatest thing that ever happened. And no wonder people in the early centuries thought it was a simply unspeakable absurdity for Paul to say, I glory in the cross. I boast about the cross. The cross is not something that the average man or woman of this world is ready to celebrate or be proud of or, or cheer for. And there's a reason for that. 
Because a true understanding of what the cross is is that which will strip you down and show you your desperate spiritual state. People instinctively, I think, stay away from it. Oh, they laugh at you. Oh, you, you people in your religion of blood. It's all so gory. But really, they're almost afraid of it. Because they understand that if you face what happened there, that the Son of the Most High came and became a substitute in my place, then it's my poverty of spirit, my conviction of sin, my guilt that begins to be on display. And people don't want that. They want another kind of Christianity, and they make many substitutes for themselves. They say, oh, I love the parables of Jesus. Oh, they're such wonderful little stories with a moralistic twist. Oh, I love the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount. And I'll just follow this Jesus who tells those marvelous stories and gives us these ethical principles. I'll customize the gospel, and I'll have this noble teacher, and I'll try really hard to follow his example. That will be my gospel. Well, as Paul says elsewhere in Galatians, that's no gospel at all because there's no good news in it. The true gospel comes when you learn to glory in the cross Because its understanding, the comprehension of what it is, comes to you like a bolt of lightning. And you see that it was God's most high and perfect son dying in your place. And the first reaction that someone has upon really understanding that is not a cheer, but a wail. As they say to themselves, at least, or to God, woe is me, for that was about me. That happened because of me. I should have been nailed there. John Stott, the Englishman, said it so well. I can't say it better. Let me quote him. Every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to say to us, I am here because of you. It is your curse I'm under, your debt I'm paying. Thus, said Stott, nothing in history or the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. We all begin with inflated views of ourselves and our self-righteousness until we visit a place called Calvary. It is only there that we shrink to our true size. That's it. And that's why people don't love the cross. Because they see that it would cut them down in a way they don't want to be cut down. Now, don't miss a last thing in our text tonight, and that is this. True boasting in the cross means your crucifixion to the pride of this world. You see what Paul wrote here after he said he boasted in the cross? He went on and said, through the cross, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Here's an insight, I think, that maybe spells that out, because There's an antagonism that exists between the world, this world and its culture and its values, and the cross. A college student understood it. She came to believe in Christ as her Lord and confessed him, and then talked with the college campus ministry leader. And she was just beginning to take hold of the new things of the Christian faith, and and she had this conversation. She said, now, let's see if I have this right. Now that I'm a Christian, I, 
I hear you say I'm obligated to tell all my sorority friends that Jesus died for their sins, right? And the campus pastor said, that's right. And she went on and said, and immediately after I witness this truth about the cross to them, most of them won't be my friends any longer, right? And the pastor said, that may be right. That may be right. Because there's an antagonism involved in the cross. It convicts people. Now Paul goes on to say here in verse 15 of Galatians 6 that no act of our natural efforts like circumcision or any kind of law-keeping or, or good deeds amount to anything, but there is something, he said, that counts. What is that? What counts is a new creation. The cross sponsors a new creation because it cancels my sin. Not just sin of the past, sin of today, sin of tomorrow. It wipes my record clean. It's like being born all over again. 2 Corinthians 5.17, as Paul saying there, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Sin is canceled, but more than that, God's doing something more in this new birth. He's also working in me to change me by his own power, inwardly, day by day, and that starts working outward in my behavior and my deeds. And so we can summarize the consistent cross-centered ministry that Paul had. He spoke in so many places. Galatians 2.19, earlier in this letter, he said, I have been crucified with Christ, and yet I live. And yet it's not just me anymore. There's a new creation here talking to you. Not just I, but Christ lives in me. 1 Corinthians 2, 2, he came to that church and he said, I'm determined that I would know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. The world, in a sense, became dead to Paul. He said, I died with Jesus and it's as if I was born all over again and God is working his change in me Starting on the inside, it didn't start with outward actions I took, although it shows up in that later. Maybe a premier passage is Philippians 3, 7, and 8. That's boasting in the cross. For there Paul says, whatever in the world was to my profit before, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. What did I say before was boasting in Christ? It's having an obsession that overshadows your whole life. And there it is, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's Paul's obsession. If this world has nothing to offer me, Paul said, and only treats me with contempt, in the long run, what difference does that make? God has made me a new creation today, and he's preparing me for an entire eternity that is new, lived in his presence. We can be so bold, based on what Paul wrote, to make this blunt statement. It might be so blunt that it will offend some people. I would say if this, what I'm going to say in a moment, offends you, you better examine why. Here's the statement. If the cross 
is not preeminent above all other things in your life in this world and the world to come, you are not a Christian. Now, wait a minute. Can't I be a 10% Christian? (laughs) Can't I be a 30%? Do I have to be that? What do you mean? Preeminent, obsession, these are sweeping words. If the cross is not the one thing that you would say, don't take that away from me, because if you take that, I'm absolutely lost. You are not a Christian. You are not a Christian if you admire Jesus. You are not a Christian if you say, oh, Jesus, he's the the finest teacher that ever was, most godly man who ever was. Let me tell you, there are Muslims who believe that. And a lot of good it does their souls. If you are not able to say the Son of God who died there on that cross in gore and shame and agony and abandonment, that being done in my place is the greatest thing from the beginning of the world till the end of the world, and it's the one thing I cannot give up. I boast in it. I'm dominated by it. It's preeminent. It's overwhelming. And sometimes it leaves me speechless with adoration. If you can't say that, you're not a Christian. That's how important boasting in the cross is. Let me close with a quotation that we had printed. Actually, Troy de Bruin brought this to my attention, and we put it in the folder for this Lenten series. If you have this folder, it's in print. A 19th century man with a strange name, Octavius. Boy, I'd never name a son Octavius. Octavius Winslow was a pastor, and here's what he wrote. One moment's believing close contact with the cross will do more to break the heart for sin, to deepen the conviction of exceeding sinfulness, and to disenthrall the soul from its bondage and fears and bring us a sense of pardon, acceptance, and assured hope than will a lifetime of the most rigid legal duties that ever riveted their iron chain upon any soul. It's not about duties. It's not about good deeds. It's not about the Old Testament law. It's not about lifestyle. It's not about denomination. It's about an obsession that the Son of God dying in anguish and yet strangely in glory is the most important thing. The thing that you would say, let not anyone take this away from me, for my life and my eternity rest on it. God forbid that I should boast in anything except the cross of Jesus my Lord. Father, we have tried to survey the wondrous cross these weeks. We pray, O God, that you would increase the way in which we regard it as precious above all else. Lead us to it daily. Let us guard it in our preaching and teaching and our devotional thoughts and in our prayers that we might understand that because of that cross, we have a mediator with the Father. We have an intercessor. We have a high priest who has gone before us into the heavenlies. He is certainly the most important one 
we could ever think of, the one person we could not give up. God forbid that we should boast in anything except the cross of Jesus our Lord. Amen.